Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome to the Nerdist Podcast number 547. Uh, we've added a second Nerdist Podcast live at San Diego Comic-Con, Saturday, July 26th at 7.30 p.m. at the Balboa Theater. So uh, go online and find some tickets for that. Come out to that show. There's still, uh, there's still some available, and uh, we hope to see you there. I'm very excited for Comic-Con. It's, uh, I try to take less stuff this year than last year, but and, and I, I think I did slightly... But, you know, when people ask you to do stuff that you want to see or be near, you, it's hard to say no. Because I I would go to Comic-Con if I weren't working at Comic-Con. So, in some of these cases, the only way that I'm going to see things is if I actually moderate the panels. Because uh, they don't play favorites at Comic-Con. Rightfully so. But it's real hard to get into stuff. So, uh, so I'm excited for Comic-Con uh, next weekend. Hope to see you guys out there. Uh, which is Carol Liefer. Now, Carol... Um, if you don't necessarily know her by name, she is an epic comedy writer. She's, she wrote on Seinfeld. She's written on Larry Sanders. She's written on a ton of amazing stuff. I, I knew her as a stand-up um, when, when my comedy brain was developing, when I watched uh, every stand-up special in the 80s. But she's so smart and so cool and so funny. And, uh, and I really enjoyed having her on the podcast. So when I found out that she had a book coming out, which is called How to Succeed in Business Without Really Crying. Uh, I wanted to have her on and just sort of talk, but it was really... These are the moments that I really relish as a, uh, doing this podcast is, you know, all these people that helped influence, you know, the path that I would ultimately take later in life when I was younger. Just getting to sit down with them and the fact that they know who I am trips me out. I was like, no, how can you know who I am, Carol For I've been watching you for decades. Uh, so I was very happy to have her on. Here's the Nurse Podcast number 547 with Carol Leifer. Now entering Nerdist.com. I was really excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you. I was really excited to do it. I, um... My young life, I mean, I was such a huge comedy junkie when I was growing up. Uh-huh. I must have seen you on a million everything, like a Dangerfield special. Absolutely. And, and all of the, I'm sure you must have done Evening at the Improv and Caroline's yes. and all that craziness. Yeah, I, was, I think about that uh, Caroline's thing because... Evening at the Improv, not, oh, Caroline's I hosted, right, but Evening at the Improv, I was on, and Vincent Price 
introduced me. What? In 1981, okay? And he introduced me as, please welcome Carol Leifer. And I was so, like, new and green that I didn't even have the balls at, you know, that age to go like, no, can we redo it? Because you just said my name wrong. You stupid pencil mustache <laughs> fuck. It's Carol Leifer. It's Leifer now. Yeah. I've changed it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe I was also scared of him. I've thought about that. Yeah. What's the deal with airplanes? <laughs> <laughs> like, what the fuck was Vince doing? <laughs> I know. He was the oddest host for an evening at the improv. But. Men pee standing up, I'm told. Yeah, that's true. Am I right, ghouls? <laughs> well done. Boom. That was a, what did a, I mean, I always look back at the comedy boom as this romanticized idea uh, because, you know, now I feel like as sort of a survival mechanism, uh-huh. you know, a lot of a lot of us went into podcasting or you know social media, just different forms of expressing who we are, so that people can decide if they want to come see us live. Because there's just not a lot of stand up on television outside of comedy. Central. Yeah, yeah, no, it's really wild that in the you know when I started out, like people like. So he's before my, you know, my generation. But Freddie Prince, if you're on the Tonight Show and you killed, like the next day you would have a series, and you know you can be a star. I mean, it's really changed, and there's no one TV show now where you can go on and the next day be this hit. You, have to you do know, like a hundred. Yeah, yeah. Or even really doing more through podcasting and YouTube and all that kind of stuff. You know, yeah. it's a whole new world. How many? You must have done Letterman like. 30 times, right? Well, 26. 20. But who's counting? <laughs> who's counting? Um, yeah, no, I was really lucky that I was um, performing at the comic strip. And Letterman came in. And this is right when he um, had his NBC show. And I knew that he had been in the club, but he was gone when I came off. And uh, luckily, I had a good set. So I was happy about that. And then I got a call to do a show, and then when I did his show for the first time, he um, took me aside and he said, I think you're terrific, and whenever you want to come on, whenever you're ready, just come on the show. Just call and tell us you're ready. You don't even have to audition or anything. He's probably still like that, right? He goes to comedy clubs. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Hangs out. (laughs) Goes backstage, drinking. Yeah. Uh, no, it's a different, yeah, another different time, different but, time. but how great to have the support of someone like that so early on, you know, was amazing. But it was, it, it was a time in comedy where it seemed like you basically just perfected a bunch of five minute sets for everything. Because if there were so many, every channel had, you know, a ton of, a ton of shows. Did you, did you repeat a lot of material? Did you feel like, no, I have to do a different five minutes on everything? Or did you mix it up? What was your... I kind of mixed it up, but, well, with Letterman, it always had to be a new five minutes. So I was always in the clubs and working on my, you know, next set, my next five minutes to go on the show with. Um, But then, you know, when you're, as a comic also, it depends on the crowd. If you are... um, you want to make sure you do great, you do a lot of your greatest hits, you know, or if you're, um, want to try new material, I still do this when I try new material, you know, I sandwich it between things that, you know, are going to work. So you don't look like a complete jerk if it doesn't work and then you have nothing to sail onto, you know? So it's always just kind of working it out and working out 
where the crowd's at. Did you tour a bunch at that time? Were you touring every weekend in those days, or were you pretty much sticking to New York or LA? No, I did travel um, a lot in my um, new book. I hope they gave you a copy of my book that I'm promoting, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Crying. I don't think they did. Oh, my God. Right. Or if they did, it went to someone who has not given it to me yet. All right. Well, I need that person's name. Get is Don on the phone? <laughs> well, when we're done, I'm going to get you a copy from my trunk. Okay, good. Please. Okay. <laughs> but um, I used to go on the road a lot, but I tell these, you know, war stories a lot in my book. And one of them was, you know, did you, you're probably too big to have worked where they, a comedy club had a comedy condo. Oh, no. It's only been the last couple of years that anyone has come to see me on purpose. Like I've been in many disgusting, really (laughs) just DNA soaked comedy (laughs) condos. Right. Right. Well, to explain to the audience, you know, club owners, sleazy club owners got very smart with the comedy boom because it was like, Hmm, instead of putting someone up in a motel six every week, I could just buy a crappy condo and just throw the comics in there every week and not have to have the normal things like maid service <laughs> and security. It'll and- really help foster all of the bad habits that comics have. Exactly. And they'll they'll basically just then you'll just you'll just get the residual effect of <laughs> right. a thousand broken humans before you yeah. in one hovel. Right. I mean, you know what I love about the comedy condos. There's Always a kitchen, never a sponge. One <laughs> sponge, you know? But anyway. And it's a contraceptive one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, an old one and used. It's used. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, I, <laughs> um, I tell this story about uh, having done the comedy condo, and I worked with this woman, Sue Kalinsky, who's still a friend of mine, woman comedian. We go to the comedy condo and meet this guy. Hey, how are you doing? You know, it's Arizona, there's a pool there. We actually hang out at the pool at the Disgusting Comedy Condo. Then around 7 o'clock that night, we're like, all right, we'll get ready for the show. Sue comes down. We were kind of gathered at the door to head out to the club. And we say to the guy, like, okay, you ready to go down to the club? And he comes down. He's still in his swim trucks. He's like... Oh, I'm not a comic. I just live here. Oh, jeez. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like the sleaziness of the club owners really extended to, oh, I can also rent it to strange men. Well, you oh. should have just had him do five minutes anyway because he probably would have had a great... <laughs> right? yeah. So we had to wash that experience off <laughs> the next day. With Burying our... strangers is weird. <laughs> what? Uh, who's with me? Uh, who's doing tonight after the show? <laughs> yeah, that was a very brief gig. But um, So I traveled a lot, and then I did do... Um, some big gigs. I was lucky enough that one of my lettermans, um, Carl Wilson, who this story is so long ago that actually Carl Wilson of the Beach Boys is dead. <laughs> but um, he saw me on Letterman and asked me to open for them Whoa. in um, Lake Tahoe. Yeah. For Christmas week. The, the, open New for the Year's. Beach Boys? Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. It was a big deal. But. I was not casino ready. I'll put that in quotes. Hmm. And you know, Chris, you, there are certain gigs and things you have to do where you have to be, you know, enameled <laughs> to the crowd. <laughs> um, That's and the perfect I, way to put it. That's right? the perfect way to put it. Enameled. And I went up and I, you know, especially the New Year's show, I had, the, I had such hard. First of all, the Beach Boys were tuning up. 
while I was on stage. Oh, uh, sure. So that was lovely. I had no manager or agent with me, so I had to you know, knock, knock, knock. Um, Beach Boys, can you not tune up while I'm on? Thank you. Uh, they didn't care. And then um, the New Year's show was horrible. That I had these frat boys right in front, <laughs> down center. They literally, no one was policing the room. They literally were pulling on my mic cord and yelling, reefer, reefer. (laughs) Very smart frat boys making fun of my last name. And I was like pulling on it like a fisherman line trying to get my mic back. Um, so that really still rates as my worst stand-up Ugh. experience and, and, ever. And, and, and what a terrible way to soil the Beach Boys. Yeah. Like, Yes, that's true. I know. Do you, I, get, do you get hives every time you hear, God only knows. Yeah, God only knows if I still can live past that week. Well, that that's what's so, I mean, because yeah. it's, it's dicey. The mixture of comics opening for bands is dicey because it has to be the right kind of band. Absolutely. And it also has to be your audience. And so when it's, the Beach Boys, what a fucked up thing for any comic to, because it's like no one, they want to, people come to see the Beach Boys, and it's, it's very difficult for you, you're in a, you're in a not, you're starting from a very right. bad position. Yes. Because you're basically not the thing that they came yeah. to see, you're and way. you're in the way. <laughs> exactly. And it doesn't matter what you say, they're just gonna, they're gonna be kind of cranky because... Why aren't you the Beach yeah, Boys? Yeah. Right. Yeah, Bobcat has horrible stories when he was opening up for Nirvana. Where just like uh, he, oh, right God. when he would walk out, just people would just start throwing bottles at him, and just it's like you know, just you're in the way. You're in the, the way. Beach way they were throwing uh, surfboards and those surfboards and life jackets, theremins. They were just throwing all their, <laughs> their, 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 their pocket theremins. <laughs> <laughs> sand, just handfuls yeah. of sand. <laughs> Were well, they nice, at least? Well, it was such a surreal experience because I flew from um, L.A. with them to Tahoe in their private jet, so that was, like, really odd with a girlfriend I brought. That was strange. But we didn't talk, you know, that much, and then certainly they felt the need with the tuning up while I was on. That was also strange. But, um, no, you know, I didn't really get to know them, per se, <laughs> You know. Can anyone really get to know Brian? Do you Wilson? really? <laughs> Not even Brian Wilson. <laughs> I mean, do, so is that? Did that gig enamel you? Oh, completely. I and mean, so you were, you were. So those gigs are actually probably some of the most valuable ones that you can have. Yeah. as a performer. No, and I talk a lot about it in my book because you know it's really kind of the book I wish I had when I started out, and I really say over and over like you've got. Anybody who does stand-up knows you've got to suck to get good. Mm-hmm. There's no way around it. You have to fail a lot. So I always say to people, don't be afraid of failing because you're supposed to be doing that. And those gigs, like my Beach Boys gig, those are the things that really you know, enamel you up to be able to do all the other things that you go on to do. And they toughen you up and make you the better performer. Were you good on the road in terms of... Uh emotionally were you did you have like the enamel to to handle the road just because i when i started touring what i discovered was that you can i mean not to bum anyone out who's going to see a comedy show but you can get kind of depressed after like the third or fourth show or fifth show where you go back to your room and you're just like all of a sudden you're just alone and you've basically scooped out all of your emotional energy on stage and you're just <laughs> yeah, yeah. like I feel weird. You know, did you feel that at all? Were I don't pretty- know. I, I like traveling. I mean, I'm one of the few people. I still like flying and going to gigs. And I I always found that with other comics. Like, there's a certain 
part of your personality that I always liked kind of the solitude of it and having the show and it meeting a local act there or whatever and hanging out and becoming friends. And I still have friends from those kind of, you know, gigs, but I don't know. It didn't really bum me out as much as I kind of liked it. I do love the travel part. I mean, I, uh, my favorite thing about the job, one of my favorite things about the job is that it, it basically forces you to see, you know, the, our country or wherever you go. But right. as, a, as a tourist, yeah. like you see so many cool places and feel so much local culture that you would never, in, in most other professions, you would never be able to do that. But I know so much about this country just from, just from being a touring comic. Right, absolutely. And it's nice when you get the day to do that kind of stuff and yeah. go on a cheesy tour or, you know, do whatever thing like that. I would always lie to myself and be like, well, you know, I can spend, I can, you know, I'll get up at like nine, I'll go to breakfast, I'll write from noon to six. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> right, really, never works. Really I mean, worried. I remember working, you know, like, Niagara Falls, and I went to see Niagara Falls by myself. That was a little depressing. Because yeah. <laughs> you're like, not even anybody there to go like, hey, it's pretty cool, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a stranger's family. Yeah. Hey, you guys, can I jump in that picture with you? <laughs> hey, you can just FaceTime it. Yeah. Hey, look at that. <laughs> look at the majesty on your 1136 by 640 resolution. <laughs> um, it, when you were doing, when you started doing stand-up, what was your, was your ultimate goal to always do stand up or was it to to go to go into writing or what was did you have a goal at the time uh i just really wanted to be kind of the best comic that i could you know that was really just my goal from doing it for all those years and traveling and the writing really came about you know accidentally because um you know my first open mic night the mc at the comic strip was jerry seinfeld and the MC at Catch Rising Star, my first open mic night, was Larry David. So oh. I literally go back to, like, my first day in show business with these guys. So when they were doing Seinfeld, they were literally looking for writers who'd never worked on sitcoms before. And I know because I have friends who were writers at that time who were, like, you know, worked on Roseanne or Murphy Brown, and they would, do, you know, send in these spec scripts, and these guys were like, we don't want anybody who's done it before. So... Um, they came to me and asked me to write on the show, which was like my inexperience was a giant plus having never done it before. So wow. I was really lucky that in the case of Seinfeld, uh, they were looking for blank slates that That's way. That's really, I mean, I, I guess I on some level knew that without actually knowing that because the way the, the unconventional style of the show was not the typical sitcom tropes that I'm sure, you know, you get these, like, these workhorse guys that go from sitcom to sitcom and like, right. all right, these are the acts. This is what happens. Is that we got to do this? There's this jokes, you know. Yeah. So it's yeah. really interesting to hear that that was, that was actually by design. Absolutely. And um, it's great because Larry David was kind enough to just do an event with me called Writer's Block at the Writer's Guild Theater um, in support of my book. And, you know, I got to act it out for the audience of when you would go in and pitch to him and Jerry. And Larry was a very you know, tough date when you would pitch to him. <laughs> he had this tick, like he would, you'd pitch and, you know, he'd move his shoulder around and go like, no, no, you know, <laughs> no. I mean, his biggest put down was like, oh, I could see that on another show. You know? oh, wow. <laughs> it was like, so are you pitching storylines or, or pitching uh... storylines, potential storylines. So, um, it's funny because, uh, when they like something, it was an immediate, they got it right away. You know, Elaine thinks the Korean manicurists are talking about her behind her back in Korean. He would leap out of his chair and go, that's a, that's a show. We're doing that. That's an episode, you know. But 
that kind of moment compared to <laughs> 10 other pitches of whatever and him moving a shoulder around going, no, nah, no. Nah, Can you remember one that you thought, oh, this should definitely be a storyline, but it never it, it didn't make it? We always had something where they always loved real life uh, experiences. If I knew or the writers knew you would go into pitch and you could say, and this just happened to me, I always felt that was like an add 10 points to them. Hmm. You know, like... um I was a beard for, you know, it is t- funny, though, about, you know, the history of, you know, of time and what was happening culturally. You know, 20 years ago, I was a beard for a gay guy uh, at the Hollywood Bowl because he was in banking. And it was a time when men, gay men couldn't be out. And if he had a date, you know, needed a beard. So I went with him and that became, you know, the storyline of the beard yeah. that we did for Seinfeld. But um so, you know, when I wanted to pitch that, and I said, I just was at the Hollywood Bowl, and I was a beard for this gay guy. You know, that always helped. But, um, I mean, here's something that, you know, was definitely um, something that happened at the time. Yeah, of course, fanny packs were very big. <laughs> if you'll go back with me to the early 90s. Still big in Germany. Woo-woo, <laughs> <laughs> right. World Cup. And um, so I was wearing a fanny pack going about my day when I lived in New York, and uh, it was a giant fanny pack, and it was under my T-shirt. And I remember that whole day, like, people were being really, like, so nice and solicitous, like, no, after you, and please, hey, take my seat. <laughs> and then I realized at the end of the day, you know, I think people think I was pregnant because of the fanny pack under my shirt, you know? I'm pregnant with a chapstick and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and some change. Well, I had my big Walkman in there, you know, <laughs> giant um, equipment. So I, you know... They always loved that idea. We never found, you know, so much of Seinfeld was the big jigsaw puzzle of putting the pieces together. You know, George, uh, the golf ball going into the whale and, you know, coming out. I, you know, it was like an amazing jigsaw. So we never found a spot for it. But I always thought, oh, that would be, that would have been a fun story. So then how did the, how did the storylines build? So you go and you, and you pitch and you go, okay, Elaine thinks that all the, the Korean women in the, are talking about her. So then where, where does it go from there? Do you, do you then go off and start writing the, the, do you break it down into acts or is it done as a group or do they take it over? Well, what would happen is you would, they liked that idea. Then it became like, what are the other ideas of the episode going to be? We used for that specific episode another idea that you'll appreciate as comics from real life. Um, you know, Elaine pretends she's deaf not to have to talk to the car service driver. <laughs> um, and that was a little bit of, you know, poetic license, uh, creative license because all my years on the road at 6 a.m. when the car service guy would pick me up and I'd get like chatty Kathy. Oh, yeah. And um, can you curse on your thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've heard fuck like nine times. Okay. Where I, you know, be in the backseat like, would you shut the fuck up? Yeah. <laughs> 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 okay, either they're taking you to radio and... Or just to the airport. Oh, yeah. For your gig. And um, I just couldn't handle the small talk at 6 a.m. So we used that. Then it was like they came up with the, uh, the lines woman being um, deaf... In that episode, too. So, oh, that, no, I'm actually, no, I've moved on to the lip reader, that episode. You just kind of put all the pieces together of the characters, and then each writer would go off and write a draft. But what was amazing about Seinfeld and the genius of it, I think, is, you know, every episode that everybody sees on the air was rewritten by Larry and Jerry. I mean, they had the final pass on everything. They put it kind of through their filter. So I would say the writers, you know, we were the cogs in the wheels of their brilliance because it was their baby. And um, they really had the final pass on everything. 
That's amazing. And did you also work on Larry on um, Larry Sanders? Yes, and then I worked on Larry Sanders Jesus. too. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, what was that writing? Pro- that feels like that was a completely different writing project. Because it was that was that. Yeah, that was. I'd never worked in a uh, room before. You know, room writing because Seinfeld was more like independent study. You know, come up with your own thing. Back to Larry and Jerry. Go back a little. Do oh, a little wow. more work. Back to their office. Back and forth that way. Writers, we would look at each other's stuff and kind of contribute. But it was a little more independent that way. But Larry Sanders was my first um, writer's room, you know, where, and it's the way that I like to work now with the synergy of a million comedic voices in one room and it making it, I think it makes any comedy that much better. And so was that, were you on, did you come on immediately on that show? Were you like right from the get-go on that show or did you come on? Well, it's funny you bring that up, Chris, because, um, you know, it's actually another story in my book about when I interviewed for Larry Sanders after I left Seinfeld, that was the only show I really wanted to work on. And I had a great meeting with Gary Shanling and John Regie, who was the showrunner at the mm-hmm. time. And you know where you leave one of those meetings and you call your agent and you're like, you're going to get a call. They're going to hire me in two <laughs> seconds. So, so sit tight. Sit by the phone. And then it became like this six-week process after of like, uh, it was a great meeting, but we're thinking about it. We're still meeting, blah, blah, blah. And, and then it became like, I heard they, you know, chose another writer and I was really steamed about it you know because I felt like like the stringing me along and I was disappointed but I tell the story in terms of if you want to have I think a long career you can't ever be bitter about shit because it catches up with you so like three months later I ran into Gary Shandling at the Emmys and I was writing on the Emmys and instead of being like you know snippy to him or whatever of having an attitude I was really nice and friendly, and he said to me at the end of the end, he's like, if something happened where a writing position came up, would you consider it? I was like, absolutely. And then a week later, oh, somebody, wow. you know, he fired somebody and hired me. So I tell the story also, in the, you know, just in the vein of don't have an attitude and, you know, be always friendly and approachable because it only bites you in the ass. It doesn't serve you. Well, yeah, and also, look, whatever story you write in your head about what happened – or why something didn't work out, or mm-hmm. like, oh, they're against me, or they're it's never true. Yeah. Like, they just, for whatever reason, they had their own reasons for doing stuff, and it, was, it right. wasn't at you. It was just like, oh, well, they, maybe they needed to go in a different direction, yeah. or maybe they just, who knows, but it's never, uh, you know, I think a lot of people trip up because they just get so in their heads about, this is probably what was going on. Yeah, and, yeah. And I would imagine that 98% of the time, you are not right yeah. about that, and it's better just, like... Don't let your ego get in the way. And it's so hard because you're putting yourself, they're turning you down. So it's hard not to take it personally when you're the one who's being rejected. But it's such an important lesson. I mean, I'd really like to ask you because you've done so well. And if you had like one piece of, you know, business advice, I mean, is there something that just kind of pops out to you as a really something you would want to tell people? Maybe building off what you were saying, is it like... if you don't get hired for something, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're rejecting you. It just means they're picking someone else, uh-huh. which the sort of by virtue of that, a bunch of people are going to not get used and feel rejected. Yeah. But ultimately, they're not – I feel like it's a slightly different parent. It's like a slightly different way to think about it as, you know, like – you you are not getting this because I don't like as opposed to we're just hiring this other person. Yeah, yeah. It has nothing to do with you. They're just a little more right for this job. But mm-hmm. maybe so for me, I think 
I mean, I've had a couple of different careers in this business, and what I r- can think of to tell people is that um, that it's it's never over as long as you're willing to roll up your sleeves and figure it out. I mean, it might yeah, not. That's a great. It great might. Piece it of might advice. take some time. Right. Right. You know, but but my but my career was dead. And did not seem like it had any prayer of anything, but I just, you know, I was like, well, fuck, I, I'll, what else am I going to do? I, I got to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And so it really is just being able to, just like in stand-up, I guess it's like get the enamel, you know, like yeah. be able to fall down and then go, okay, you know, that hurt for a couple of days and it's fine that that hurt for a couple of days, but yep. don't fucking hang on to it. Do not, you know, if the best thing you can do with bitterness is turn it into motivation. Yeah. But don't let it fester into more bitterness. I think you can take... You can take this, you know, when you get to that crossroads where mm-hmm. you feel the rejection mm-hmm. or you feel like everyone's against you, you know, like you can either, you can go in two ways. You can either make that more intense yep. <laughs> where it will ultimately consume you yes. and it's not going to get you what you want. Or you can flip it upside down and go, okay, what can I do with this? Yeah, it's yeah. It's basically just turning everything into a lesson or a tool for something else tenacity yeah Yeah. i I guess i Uh guess but you you really do have the ability to i think most people feel like they're sort of guided by their emotions but Mm -hmm. you can depending on the questions that you ask yourself you know as opposed to why does this always happen to me as opposed to like well how can i use this effectively or is there anything to be learned from this or what can i do to make this better Mm -hmm. the next time the next time it's you know you're basically it's just slightly different questions for the same event but it, it'll just take you in, in better directions, I think. Absolutely. But you always just have to be, I think you always have to be aware of what it is that you want. Yeah. And also, you know, if one door doesn't open, well, there are a hundred other doors. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and, and when you give into the ego stuff, you stop asking yourself. It's sort, of like when you, it's sort of like when you get in a fight with someone and at a certain point, like not a fist fight, but like an argument with someone. And at a certain point, you kind of go... Is this advancing the goal or are we just caught in the we're animals and it's yeah. just like rah, 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 to win? Yeah. yeah. And like is, are, you, are you just trying to win? And I think when you can kind of take the ego part out, which can be very hard to do, especially as performers, it yeah, can be hard to do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, hard for anyone, I guess. But, but, it, but if you can take the ego out and say, well, now wait a minute. Is this advancing us to our goal or any more understanding about the situation – I think that's just a more effective way to handle conflict. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I'm not great at it, but I try. <laughs> <laughs> no, you, well, you must be. I mean, anybody who's successful, you know, you navigate those kind of waters. I mean, you know, I even talk about um, a lot in the book about, you know, um, Brian Cranston. Yeah. Just the example of, you know, I know him when he played Tim Watley <laughs> on Seinfeld, the dentist, you know, who thought um, Jerry, you know, Jerry thought he was just using jokes, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, but what I love about Brian Cranston is knowing him as just a working actor. He was like the money in the bank guy. He'd show up. He'd be great. And he'd leave. And then any other show that I'd ever see him on. And I would say to him, I'd take him aside because when I was like trying to audition for things as an actress and I was horrible at it because the second after I finished, I'd call my agent like, do you get any feedback? Do you say anything? Do you get it? You know, hounding them. And Brian was like, you know what, Carol? Here's what I do. When I have an audition, I take the sides. I prepare like a mofo. I go in. I do my thing. And then as I leave, as I'm leaving the lot, I toss the sides in the trash. And then a lot of times when my agent gives me the, I get the gig, 
he has to remind me what I auditioned for. I let it go that much. And to me, like, now I see why he's so successful because he just had the mindset of somebody who's got it right. You know, you focus on the work, you focus on what you can control and what you can't fuck it because you can't control it. That's yeah. the best. And, and because you, you do get, like, what did they say and why didn't I this and why didn't that as opposed to... Because with, with Brian, when he was on the podcast, I was... I was kind of digging around in what turned to be a fruitless direction where I said, you know, like, well, how do you handle the insecurities that, you know, performers and then the self-doubt? And he was like, I don't know. Like, there was no (laughs) connection to it. And, you know, he just didn't have it because ultimately it is a complete waste of your emotional energy to focus on and start creating storylines in your head about things that you absolutely cannot control. Yeah. And someone gave me the advice of just focus on you and what you can control and don't focus on anything else. Uh Uh-huh. Because it's not gonna, you know, because you just start getting in your head about everything, whether it's, you know, work or relationship or anything else. You're like, oh, what if this? And what if this isn't? I don't know. And and Yeah, what did that mean? And then it's just like, don't. And like with Cranston, it's just like, don't yeah you're never you're never gonna know right and you're never gonna it's just gonna make you crazy so just focus on you focus on what you can control you know be good be nice to people yeah and the rest of it works itself out absolutely yeah i I look at someone like cranston and i go oh man that would be great to to have that but it does some people i think are just predisposed to that Mm -hmm. and other people i think i like you need to you need to work it a little bit but it is it is possible it's just that you know, having been around for so long, I've just seen the bad side of it. I've seen so many people who are so talented and had so much to offer, but they screwed it up for themselves because their anger got in the way or their yeah. bitterness or, yeah. you know, I'm sure we each have stories of people who just had a great opportunity and got mad and blew it. And then yeah. it, you know, and it's like times 10 because then when you alienate someone like that, it's kind of, and so on and so on and so on. It usually is when you, you know, when you see someone who is, who is really, really, really hit it big in something. I mean, anyone can get an opportunity. Like there's, you know, there is a certain amount of luck, but I think you kind of engineer your own luck. It's sort yeah. of like preparation meeting opportunity kind of a thing. I, I don't, I don't as much. Blind luck is just like, oh, you might win the lottery, Uh but, you know, don't. But I love what you said when you had Tom Hanks on about the movie. Was that something he said about your first movie, then that guarantees you get three more movies? That was a story that I had heard about him. There was a a director that I worked with, I think a guy named Joel Zwick, maybe, and I think Joel directed Bosom Buddies, Uh and I was talking about Bosom Buddies, and he was like, yeah, you know, because he was there when Tom got Splash, and like all, everything started blowing up, and he was like, yeah, he had this theory that... If one movie was a hit, you'd get three more. And if any one of those was a hit, you'd get three more. Yeah, it was yeah, just yeah. Like this, this pyramid. Right. But, but just the idea that, um, you know, you, that you, you sort of come in as prepared as you can be and, you know, and then the, the quote-unquote luck will happen. But people in, like anyone in any position of prolonged success is it's, you, when you get to know them, you kind of go, oh, yeah, that's why. I mean, it's not an accident. Like, yeah. That's why. Absolutely. That's why Brian Cranston's where he is. Right. That's why, you right. know, Seinfeld. Like, there's no... It, it's, it's, it's... Those kinds of things are not accidental. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's funny because, you know, even two things like just being a good person and being nice along the way is so important because, you know, 
I've been around long enough that when I was putting my video reel together mm. of my early lettermans and stuff, you know, the guy who was at the video place who put my reel together is a guy named Grant Heslov, you know, oh. who's like Clooney's writing partner, producing partner. And, um, you know, I, I always tease him whenever I run into him, you know, it's great that when we were doing, I wasn't like, you know, you're doing schmuck. That's, you know, you don't put the Merv before the Letterman, you know, move that around. <laughs> you Never idiot. do Merv before Letterman. You open with Letterman, you close with Merv. It's fucking simple. Hezloff, what a dumb name. You'll never do anything. Oh, Clooney, the guy with the mullet? Fucking right. nepotism. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Can you tell him to wait outside? We're not done quite yeah. yet. Yeah, putting yeah, my... Tell George Clooney we'll come over to Mrs. Garrett's for some candy. <laughs> he was on Facts of Life. Yeah, yeah. I was going to make a Revenge of the Killer Tomatoes joke. Oh, yeah, yeah, no. I sort of undercut you with the... Uh... I mean, look... No, yours is better. Listen, be nice to people. If, if you can't do it because you feel like you should be good to humanity... Then it's also then do it for the selfish reason, right? You know, but just be nice to people. Yeah, same yeah, effect. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. ultimately, just put niceness into the world. You know, even, even if you have to force yourself to do it for, for, for selfish reasons. <laughs> yeah. But no, because it can really bite you in the ass. You know, when you least expect it. I mean, even comics. You know, there's such a fraternity among comics that I always, you know, think is fantastic. And um, I tell the story about how I once did this corporate gig and. Uh, I was going to be the main thing, but they got Joan Rivers to introduce me, so I show up at the gig, and I'm like, um, oh, this is great. There's a mic there, but there's, like, no spotlight. So, of course, again, no agent, no manager with me. I go to the guy, like, where's the follow spot? And he looks at me like, oh, sorry, Cher. We don't have oh. your spotlight. <laughs> and I'm like, no, 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 you understand. It's when the lights go down. It's kind of important for the Whatever. And then, like, Joan Rivers comes in for two minutes to introduce me. She walks in, and it was great, because she got there, and she went, where's the spotlight? Wow. You know, and the guy was like, uh, uh, well, and then literally went on stage and went, I'm just bringing her on, but let me tell you something. This is, you know, you guys weren't prepared. You didn't have a spotlight. Nice. Wow. And so you give her attention. And they were a great audience, and it was so great, because, like, the look I could give the douchey, you know, <laughs> tech guy. But... You That's the great on, thing you about You could have gone on stage and said, nice to be here. I'm Cher. <laughs> While you're flipping the guy on. <laughs> right. I'm Cher. <laughs> but that's the great thing about comics because we get it, you know? Well, yeah, and it's you should trust someone who does something regularly that yeah. they probably know the mechanics <laughs> of how it works right, best. And right. then it's not like, yeah. I need a spotlight because uh, I just want to make sure everyone's... <laughs> like, no, everyone's supposed to be focused yeah, on you because right. that makes yeah. the show better. Right. Because when everyone's attention is all over the place, then that's, mm-hmm. the, you know, it's just, just better for you. So when you go on here in town, where do you like to perform? In L.A.? Um, I, well, we have a space at Meltdown Comics, a little theater that I like to perform at, or UCB is another place that I like to do, or, or the improv. But I don't... I, I, I do enough. I do enough road stuff that I I'm now at this point kind of less motivated to go do seven or ten minutes somewhere in Los Angeles. Yeah, because I'm just I'm really busy, and so it takes. And and also, unless I'm really just trying to work out new material, uh, which I should be doing all the time, but unless it's like I really have to, or I just need to get out of the house, it's harder for me because what I found is that I'm having trouble. My long set is all kind of interconnected and I've been struggling a little bit locally doing like 10 minutes mm-hmm. or 12 minutes because I'm lifting 
just pieces out of larger things that get context in a show. Right, right. And so they don't, as opposed to when I was building my set based on five, seven, ten minutes. Yeah, yeah. And then just stitching it all together. Like now there's, there's this kind of arc developing with the new hour. And so it's, I've been having trouble like doing short sets lately. Huh. But yeah, the improv and, and, and meltdown are usually the two places that I perform. Do, do, do you perform locally a ton? I do, but I actually take the giant schlep down to um, Comedy Magic Club. Yeah. Because um, I find that it's always kind of a built-in, ready-to-go audience. Can't swear down there. <laughs> That's true, yeah. <laughs> Gotta be clean. I wish I could be clean. Right. Want to be clean. Yeah. It's just hard. I think because um, I've worked clean for so long, and I do a lot of corporate stuff now, it's not as hard. Yeah, if you want to do corporate stuff, you got to be clean. Yeah. My, ma- my manager keeps saying, if you could just do a clean hour, <laughs> you can do corporate. And I'm like, I know, but dicks are great. Like, I don't know how to... <laughs> make dicks not great. Yeah, yeah. And make, you know, make the word vagina not fantastic, and I will never... I'll work clean. <laughs> do events for Dick Sporting Goods. There's your corporate... There's your dick. <laughs> <laughs> it just slightly changes. Yeah. Slightly changes. Yeah. Do you... Uh, do you want to do a new hour at any point soon? Are you going to do a new special anytime soon, do you think? Um, you know, I've really been focusing on, really with my book, touring a lot and doing a lot of... I love doing these speaking engagements. It's kind of a way to do stand-up, but as with less the pressure of kind of the dancing monkey joke, part joke, of joke, it. Joke, yeah, joke, yeah, joke, yeah, yeah. Joke, telling a story. And, you know, I really can tell my story from... You know the beginning, which is over a long uh, period of time now. So it's it's nice that it has some like history to it. You yeah. know, so um, I like doing that a lot, and I'm still writing um, uh, pilots and TV shows. So I'm working on. I just wrapped on a show called Devious Maids. Mm-hmm. So I was over there on staff this year. Mm-hmm. Um, what was your biggest struggle? Do you think? Do you have like when you look back and you go? Oh, this part was all fine, but then this. How yeah. did I overcome this? Like, <laughs> right, what right. Because that, that's good, that's good yeah. advice for people. Yeah, well, um, I also have this chapter about, and I'm sure you found this too, you know, when you have a, a long career, and you were talking about it before, sometimes from the deepest valley can come the greatest peak, you know? Like, I was really working these bad clubs, and it was really bad, and shitty upon shitty club and I met this manager who was like you know honey come in bring me a list of clubs how much you made we're gonna go through it and he was like you know you got this at chuckle hut like I can double that you know and you triple your money here he promised me the world and I was excited about it and like cut to six months later I'm literally working worser gigs <laughs> than before like ground round restaurants on the Jersey Turnpike I'm not kidding oh no yeah where like you, people can't even hear you because they're eating the shelled peanuts and dropping them <laughs> on the floor it was horrible and I kept saying to him like where's the big gigs where's everything you promised he was like Carol I'm working on you opening for Frank and I was like, like, Frank Stallone? Like, what are you talking about? This is horrible. And he just kept saying, you know, Frank Sinatra. I was like, okay. You know, thinking he was like a mental patient. And then I'm working on a cruise ship. And, of course, this is the time where if you worked on a cruise ship and you got a phone call, it was either like one of your parents croaked or your house was, you know, blew up. Right. And it was uh, Shecky, you know, saying I got 
you to open for Frank Sinatra. Jesus. In Vegas. And he had some weird little one, you know, degree of separation to Jilly Rizzo, who was Frank Sinatra's manager. And I got to open for Sinatra. Yeah. And as bad as the Beach Boys was, that was the lowest point. Frank was the high point because it was not only was he a gentleman, like I was nervous about the gig because I thought like, oh, it's Frank. They're gonna, you know, I'm going to walk out. They're going to be like, where's Frank? And I called my friend Larry Miller, you know, the great yeah, comic who had opened for him. I was like, I'm nervous. He was like, Carol, your, your mindset is wrong. You got to think of it this way. Like, you're going to walk out, make the people think, Frank asked me to be here. I'm Frank's girl. OK, so you can sit tight, relax, because it's going to be fun. And I went out there with that attitude. And it's actually a trick I still kind of use today with my stand-up, like when I walk out. You know, it's so great when Mr. Sinatra asked me to join him here in Vegas. Mm-hmm. You know, because kind of unconsciously, it's like, he asked me to be here, okay? Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> You're going to make him friend. mad if yeah. you don't like it. Yeah. And he's going to hurt you. Right. You're going to get beat up, yeah. not yeah. me. Yeah. Um, when, yeah. I'm going to be fine. Yeah. When <laughs> a close personal my... friend, Frank Sinatra, asked me to be here, <laughs> for him, I was like, I'm busy. <laughs> Carol, you got to do this for me, baby. <laughs> yeah. Make these schmoes laugh and forget the <laughs> dirty lives. And I'm getting the light, so I... <laughs> I'm just doing right. the character from The Simpsons, yeah. that one that yeah. one guy. Hey, buddy. Hey, buddy. Yeah. But it, he was like a gentleman. He brought me out for a bow. He said some cryptic things that I still, this many years later, have not figured out. He was like, that was Carol Lee for, uh First he said... I wish my mother had been that funny. It wouldn't have had to work so hard. <laughs> Summer wind came over to me. But um, he said that. And then one time he said, Carolee Fur, she's big. She'll knock you over for the phone. And it was like, uh, okay. I don't know I what that means. A nice... I think they're all. I was just trying to throw out things that sounded cool. Maybe Sinatra was a mason, and those were all clues to a vast treasure, yeah. like the Library of yeah. Alexandria yeah. somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> She's something. She'll make you think twice about thinking three times. Wait, anyway. what? Frank? <laughs> no, don't, don't worry questions. about it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> hey. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, what? It's. I don't know. I don't know how much of the Rat Pack mythology was true, or how much was sort of mythology, right? And, and, right. And engineered, but uh, yeah, you... I don't know. I mean, this was. You know, in the twilight, uh, he still sounded great. And what I loved about it is sitting backstage and watching every show that he did and seeing that he's Sinatra, but he was also just a performer. If it was a really hot crowd that night, he'd do a little more. You know, he'd loosen up. He'd tell some stories um, just to kind of just be part of that kind of bubble of being there with him. But also, you know, in retrospect, I like that he introduced the songwriters of each of his songs. That's cool. Which I think, you know, also just as a writer is like so respectful and nice. He had my name up on his marquee, you know, which a lot of performers didn't do. You know, my friend, um, buddy Bill Maher opened for someone who wouldn't even, you know, have his name up on the marquee. And I won't say who it is, but her talent is very supreme. (laughs) (laughs) So hopefully you'll figure it out. Um, You know, but things like that. I mean, he could, you know, he could have been um, not a gentleman, and he wasn't. He was really top-notch. Did you learn, was that the thing that you learned most from him, was just being gracious? I I think so. I mean, just of someone who's a pro, you know. I, I felt like, here I felt like I'm this, like, nothing comic compared to Frank Sinatra. And yet he felt, as a performer... When I come out, 
it's nice to acknowledge the person who came on before me. Yeah. You know, so come on back for a bow. And that, I think that it just showed kind of that old kind of show business thing to me right. of yeah. grace and respect to other people who, you know, who go on before you or who you go on after we're all, you. We're all in the same thing. There's not a hierarchy. Right. I just happen to be headlining, but we're all yeah. still performers and we're still all right. together and we're doing it together and it's not. Yeah. I mean, I can't. I, was, I just went to Las Vegas for two days for no reason, which, I mean, I, I don't even like a lot of the things Las Vegas has to offer in terms of, you know, I mean, I don't drink and I don't really gamble, Uh-oh. you know, like food. Yeah, yeah. But. Uh, so what do you do? Well, just sort of, just kind of enjoyed the constant distraction of it. Uh-huh. Of just like something, you know, like 24 hours, like stuff going on and yeah. just being constantly stimulated. But but I was saying to my friend, um, that Matt that I was with, that uh, we were talking about performing in Vegas. And I was like, I don't, I think performing in Vegas now may be a lot different to what it was performing in Vegas then. Because now there, there's so much of it. That era of like, what happens in Vegas? You know, like everyone's in fucking carnival mode all yeah, the time. Yeah. And there's no, and they're just focused on themselves as they should be. You know, like they, you know, spent a lot of money to come out and be there. And they're shelling out tons of money in every direction, you know, but it is sort of hard to focus a Vegas audience sometimes, you know, to like oh, yeah. listen to the the crazy uh, inconsistencies about life that I have discovered. You know, like, <laughs> a lot of times they don't really right, want to right. focus. But yeah. I feel like there was an era where it's, it really was about, oh, let's go into the shows and focus and really. Yeah, people dressed up a yeah. little more than flip flops and a Hawaiian shirt. <laughs> yeah. I was just there this weekend, Vegas. But you see, as opposed to you, Chris, I love to gamble. <laughs> What's your game? You won't believe it. Slot machines. You like the slot machines? Oh my God. Love the slots. What's Not your... only. What's my favorite mm-hmm. slot machine? Easy question. Top dollar. What? Yeah. I don't know what that one is. Oh my God. All right. You have to start playing slot machines <laughs> okay. when you go. All right. Okay. Even if you take a hundred bucks. Yeah. Because what happens with top dollar is once you hit three. Um, top dollars like once you hit that thing in the machine then it gives you a choice it's like first offer and it kind of the um, money has different you know you'll hit like it'll go like 20 and th- you know 30 dollars sec- and you either take the offer or you keep going it's okay. a little like let's make a deal that way okay but you can win a lot of money playing slot machines as we've come to find out. I, 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 would, I would just be afraid that the slot machine would fuck with me. And if I made one choice, it would be like, well, you almost won a million dollars, even if it wasn't true. Oh. It'd be like, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, we, my, uh, but my friend Matt discovered the, the new Back to the Future slot machine, oh. which is ama- amazing because it's narrated by Christopher Lloyd oh, and, wow. and Michael J. Fox. And there's a bunch of different games in it. And you go into like Biff's world wow. and you go all these things. And he played that for hours and hours and hours. But Top Dollar sounds very much like a, this is much more of a... Because at this point, slot machines really just became about reference points. Like they used to just be yeah. the spindles and then, yeah. you know, like... Right. The, the no, they're much more interesting now. Top yeah. Dollar. So what's, you know, what's an average Top Dollar haul... You know, I don't want to brag, but we have done, my partner, Lori and I, we do very well when we go to Vegas. I mean, we hit a progressive um, on a dollar slot machine. We won $60,000. Jesus yeah. Christ. Yeah, it's great. Do you That's play the really same great. machine or does Lori play one and yes, you play one next no, to her? you have to abuse the machine. <laughs> That's what I've come to learn. You know, I see people, they stop by, they put like, you know, eight 
dollars in a machine and they leave. That you'll never win that way. You have to. You have to show the machine. So you and Lori bring boss. sleeping bags and baked beans <laughs> yes. and a lantern. We camp out. Yes. <laughs> How long did you stay at that slot to win that money? Probably three hours. It's pretty good. Yeah. Pretty good haul for three hours of <laughs> yeah. sitting down yeah. and cranking it. No, you have to really keep playing it because the, it goes in a, a waves. It, it starts to... You, and you starts. have to have a nice cushion, too. You yeah. don't go to a dollar. You have to put $200 in a dollar machine yeah. and play it. And it uh, and once it trusts you as a person, once it trusts you, yeah. kind of opens yeah. up, yeah, then yeah. you abuse it. Get it a couple of drinks, loosen <laughs> it up. Here's the money shot. Yeah. Give it a couple a of drinks. Slot. Yeah. Now, did you keep playing Throw at that point, in. or were you like, <laughs> <laughs> got a roofie slot machine? It's a quarter. It's a roofie quarter. <laughs> yeah. Do you, now, when uh, do you do you keep playing at that point, or you're like, okay, no. we're done. Let's. And that's the other thing. That's another cardinal rule of slot machines. Once you win, there are these idiots that stay. Like. Once you win, you leave. You have to go. But if let's just say you put in $200 and then you're up $200, do you count that as like, okay, I've won? Or are you like, no, there's a certain – like winning means like $1,000 or more before I walk away. Yeah, but there are machines that are cold. And when they're cold, you know that kind of when you break even, you should leave. Okay. Because it's a bad machine. Yeah. And then there are people that are coolers too. There are people who kind of watch you gamble. And then if Lori and I look at each other like – these guys are killing our buzz like they're coolers. Mm-hmm. We leave because we have to go to a different machine where they're not at. Like William H. Macy in the film The Cooler. That's oh. right. Yeah. Yes. That was based on my gambling experience. <laughs> the entire film. You should film. sue the shit out of those people <laughs> who wrote that story. Yeah. Did you, were you performing in Vegas or you just no, went? No. We just went because also when you gamble as much as we do, you know, the, the hotels will put you up for free. Sure. They'll give us dinner. They'll let us have a massage. They just want to make sure, though, you have the ass time sitting in front of the slot machine. Yeah. Do, uh, do you go to any locally to any of the... No, that's very sad to me. <laughs> Once I start going to Commerce ca- Casino, it's over. Then have an intervention, please, for me. I've never seen a more well-lit casino in my life. Is it's that just, true? It's all overhead lighting. It's just real stark and... When my, once I mean my friend was like, you know, like the bars are closed. We're like, let's go to Commerce. It's, you know, you yeah. can go there. Yeah. And we went there and we just walked in. We're like, no, no, let's, yeah, let's yeah, leave. No. Let's I leave. Know. Look, that's not to say, you know, it's a lot of the 60 grand was great and a thrill and a crazy. But there are a lot of trips that we go home and it's, you know, it's not good. Do you, do you feel like, uh, like, where are you in terms of the overall win loss? Totally like, very up. Yeah, right. let's not forget I'm a Jew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you have any doubt, no, no, no. Yeah, this is not something for the squeamish. But if it really started to become a losing proposition, yeah, we would be ending the Vegas trips. <laughs> That's smart, though. That's smart yeah. because no, some then people, it's not fun. Yeah, yeah because yeah. some people are like, we have to gamble every minute until we leave, as opposed to we're going to go and then we're going to get whatever we're going to get and then we're going to get out. Yeah, yeah. It's just about goal setting. You just have, you just have smarter goals. So you don't gamble and you said you don't drink. No. You don't drink at all. No, I don't do anything. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I'll gamble a little bit. I lost like $400 uh-huh. in Las Vegas. Uh, and Matt, who uh, makes a little bit less than I do, uh, lost. <laughs> I th- well, actually, I think this time he lost about the same, but there's some times where he'll yeah. go and he'll be like, I lost two grand on roulette. I'm like, why would you do yeah, that? Yeah, he doesn't know how to use his money. <laughs> <laughs> he's, a good, he's a good road trip buddy, though. Yeah, he is. He's the best. What yeah. were you playing? Blackjack. Okay. I was playing blackjack. I don't understand the video blackjack machines because I sort of yeah. feel like, I mean, I know there must be some 
way that it's fair, but it still feels like, wow, I just drew to 21 again. Yeah. You know, yeah, like yeah. it still feels like I'd rather just have a person. Mm-hmm. That's my game. I get too stressed out when I'm at a table with other people watching me play. That's why I like the video blackjack. Oh, just because, yeah. yeah. And then if you want, you can switch over to another game. You don't oh, have to walk away. That's true. Okay. There's, you, know, you know what they should do is in video blackjack, they should have other players just sitting there so if you hit on a like a mid card like a four or something they're like ugh, you know and yeah. then they just kind of shame you yeah, i hate it yeah I, I i don't know what the root i feel like i can go to an open table and then the second i sit down like three people sit like it always <laughs> feels yeah yeah like do you guys work for the casino just to keep the <laughs> decks flowing because it feels it always i never just yeah. sit alone at a table and the other thing too that i found with casinos is you know when you win i always like to get uh, a check because you can't spend it ah. and then you can move on. But the casinos will fight you like crazy. Like if you went over five grand, they'll say, okay, bring in, and I'll go, can I get a check? No, no problem. We're just going to run back. We'll get your cash. We'll be out here in a second. They say, like, no, it's okay. I really love a check. And they're like, oh God, that's going to take like an hour. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, I got time. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's but go I get coffee. Get cash. Be here. Say, no, we'll just go get coffee. It's fine. Like, there's, yeah, everything's open always. It's like, it's easy to yeah. waste time here. Absolutely. So, you know, but it's, it's fun. I, um, I don't. I've never. I don't think I've ever been to Atlantic City though. But Atlantic City's kind of like. Fall, I heard they're closing the Trump Tower now. Yeah, I just and saw they, that. Yeah, just saw that today. Yeah. Did you have you have you performed in Atlantic City a bunch? I have. Atlantic City is a little depressing. <laughs> yeah. I have found. Yeah. East Coast Reno, right? East Coast Reno. That's yeah. a very. I would say that's yeah. That's what's that's what the feeling I get from it. Just mm-hmm. kind of like it had its time and it's. Not doing a good job of holding on to yeah. it. Yeah, and, and talk just... about a distracted audience like you were talking about. They're... Yeah. Yeah. Have you been to Tunica, Mississippi? Uh, no, I haven't. Tunica, because I'm from Memphis, Tunica is um, basically, it was the poorest county in the state. Yeah. And then they legalized gambling, I believe, with some sort of a weird loophole where they just diverted like... <laughs> An inch of the Mississippi River <laughs> in, and so they built these hotels on. So it's, I think it's oh. like technically river boat, maybe. Oh yeah, yeah. I don't know. There was some weird loophole, but it's very much like driving to Vegas. But instead of desert, it's cotton fields. And so if you're used to driving to Vegas, it's a complete oh wow flip uh-huh. of, the, of that. So, so it's just cotton fields, cotton fields, and then all of a sudden, like a mini Las Vegas. Oh, weird. Kind of a kind of a thing, and, they, and big acts go through there and, really? and play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like forty minutes from Memphis, I think. Hmm. Um, but they're always strict about the time the comics do in the know? casinos. Yeah, I have to say, I don't think I've ever done a casino because I never thought that it would be an advent. I never thought it would be a good situation for me or the crowd there. So I've always been sort of like. Yeah, no, I'm good. Yeah. I'm good. Maybe I should have done it just yeah. for, you know. Blaine Capatch has a story. Like, the first time he went to do a show in Vegas, like, he showed up, and the guy's like, where's your suit and tie? And he's like, Blaine was just wearing a T-shirt and ripped jeans. And oh, my God. Like, oh, I, don't, I didn't bring one. He's like, well, you can't perform. <laughs> this casino uh, yeah. has when a strict... But then was it like, well, you have to borrow a jacket? Like, yeah, here's Gallagher's was... jacket. You can go out and... <laughs> you didn't even wash the melon out. <laughs> Here's his hat with seeds. This one's sprouting already. How long has this been? (laughs) (laughs) So the book, did the book come out yet, or is it about to come out? The book is out. Um, I'm going to get you a copy before I go. I'm incensed that my people doesn't mean that they didn't send it. It just might mean that it went to someone who didn't give it to me yet. Um, Yeah, it's out. It's doing great. I did. 
a big promo push for it. But it's really um, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Crying. It's really the book that I wish I had when I started because it's kind of like when I was thinking of writing a memoir, it was like, oh, this story, like, this is the takeaway from that. And, you know, this other story, oh, this is what I learned from that. And stuff that I really wanted to share because I feel like it's stuff that is really good for anybody in any business. And I'm getting such great feedback from people, like, especially friends who are like, I love your book. Now get, you know, give me one for my kid, mm-hmm. you know, who's graduating college. Because um, I tell the story at the beginning of the book about, like, I was home from college and uh, my Uncle Bernie, who wrote for Let's Make a Deal, oh. which I thought was the, oh my God, you know, the biggest show business job, like, live in this beautiful house in Santa Monica. How great. He, in New York, he said, I got a, you a meeting with the producer. Maybe you can get a job as a gopher on one of his shows. So I go from Long Island, my parents' house. I'm like an hour late because the Long Island Railroad was late. I didn't bring an umbrella. So I came drenched because it started to rain. A whole interview, I'm talking about my fabulous college career and how mm-hmm. great I'm doing. And then like, you know, a day later... I find out I didn't get the job. And as a college, stupid college student, I'm like, what? Are, you know, I'm Uncle Bernie's niece. Like, how come I didn't get the job? And so what? I was late. And so what? I came drenched as, you know, like a drowned rat. doesn't matter. Like, not, no, you know, college is like all about you, you, you. You know, it's like your point of reference. You don't realize when you get out into the work world, like things like being late, just simply being late are such job opportunity killers, uh, you know, because you don't. People don't realize it's fine to be late for your friends to meet them at, you know, Fridays. Yeah. But um, when you go for a job interview, you got to be, you should be early. Well, it does. And this actually kind of goes back to the Cranston thing, too, is that if if your life is not where you want it to be, of course, there can be external forces that you have no control over that are sort of, you know, like difficult hurdles to overcome. But there is also the likelihood that a percentage of that <laughs> are probably choices that you're making yes. that you don't realize you're making mm-hmm. because you're just not aware of yourself. And so it is important to sort of go, okay, so what were the circumstances surrounding this thing? Uh, oh, yeah, I guess I was 20 minutes later. Oh, yeah, I guess I was kind of cranky or I guess I <laughs> was, you know, like I wasn't as friendly or, or something, but there are, right. there are some things again within your control. Like do you can't control the external stuff, but, and, and actually if you start focusing on the personal stuff, the stuff you can control, sometimes that does help kind of unstick the external stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. Well. So right. So it does right. have an indirect effect and you know, you have a little more, yeah, just focus yeah. on what you can control. I mean, even little things like, you know, cause I learned this the hard way. Like when you go to a job interview, like, be nice to the gatekeepers. Like, the person you're meeting with, their receptionist, you know, their assistant. Because, you know, I've had people who leave a job interview like, well, ace that. And then, you know, the, the assistant's going to be like, well, she took the ladies' room key into the can and never returned it. And <laughs> littered the place with her energy drink and yeah, her, yeah. you know, trash. I'm here for the meeting, bitch. Yeah. <laughs> so that, another way to... <laughs> yeah. You know, just little things like that or even just... You know, when I used to have meetings, I never used to know where to sit. I always felt, you know, so awkward of like, oh, when you walk in. So now I even, when I have a meeting, I just walk in and go like, where do you want me to sit? Or where's a hot seat or something? And that already makes people that much less nervous about having a meeting. Sure. You really can tell a lot about someone when you start to see like, um, are they nice when it doesn't serve them in some way? Like, are they nice when they don't have to be nice Uh for their own? Right purposes yeah i mean ever you know 
everyone can fake being nice to a degree, mm-hmm. but you know, are those people nice? I'm like, no, I mean, like, no one's perfect 100% of the yeah, time. Right, right. But in general, uh-huh. you know, I think you can tell a lot about someone by um, how they talk to servers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I know I got mad at that one in Portland that one time <laughs> that you always was, bring up that wasn't their fault. I wasn't, I wasn't even thinking about general, that. But in general, like, how, you know, like, how, how yeah. do they treat... How do they treat servers? I think is such a is such a really great way to see what someone's personality That's type so is. That's so true. Absolutely. I mean, even things as simple as I'm sure you get people who write you a lot, you know, on social media or whatever. Well, I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, if they, it, a lot. well, you don't have a name that is hard. Chris is easy to spell. Yes. But do they spell your last name incorrectly? Um, sometimes. I mean, I do get, you know, sometimes I get Chad Hardwick or whatever, you know. Yeah. But Leifer, I would imagine people just don't even yes. know what to, or, to do and with And that. then Carol, they go to town with, with the, <laughs> the extra How do you e. fuck up Carol? <laughs> you won't believe, when I go to Starbucks, how many baristas are like, with a C or a K, where I want to go, are you fucking kidding me? Well, well, who's spelling their name? Unfortunately, the Kardashianing of America... Uh, made that everyone think that, uh, that that hard It was hard a Starbucks sounded... at Calabasas. There you go. Wait, is that Calabasas with a K? <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe it. That's why. Yeah, it's 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 the Kardashianing of America. Yeah, <laughs> we live in Kardashian now, and basically everything has a K. Right. That's a hard. That really is a hard C yeah. sound. Yeah. So that's you know you you can understand why. I mean you know Kim Kim and Kanye are so captivating. There's that's the explanation. Captivating with a K. So, uh, how does succeed in business without crying? Really crying? Without really yes. crying? Yes. Uh, Pick is, it up. Is available now, and um, it's so—it's such an honor to meet you, and so great to—I don't know. I mean, I could bore the shit out of you with questions about like what was it like, and the, you know, because that comedy boom to me was so so. I was at the perfect age. Wow. And it was the perfect time for me to be sucked. You know, starting with Steve Martin in the mid seventies, uh-huh. and then just like. All the way through the end of the comedy boom in '92, around, yeah, and then yeah. you know, then for me, kind of diverting into the more alternative nice. underground scene. But but I watched every, you know, like I had people that I liked, but I watched everything, every bit of comedy, and it, it was such a rich time. It was, it was, and I'm really complimented that you say that and you know you had great hair thank you I remember yes. I remember this, yes. this, this tuft of, of right. 80s hair that was I had amazing. very big 80s hair yes I did the Tonight Show with Johnny and then my hair did it about 10 minutes later um, <laughs> <laughs> no but you know what you're talking about is you know we also talking about the fraternity of comedians when i started it was that way too i watched everybody and you know i went to college with paul riser who's really the guy who got me into stand up because oh, wow. we were in the same theater group and he was like i go to these nightclubs during the summer and i do stand up and oh, wow. you know it was so new that i was like like nightclubs who's this guy like vic damone you yeah. know like doing <laughs> clubs but i watched you know and Steve Martin was really, you know, at a peak then. So it's been amazing that, like, to write for the Oscars, which I've done so many times, and write for Steve Martin, you know, to go up to his house and write jokes. Like, it was literally like I took a moment before I went to his house, like, just like, okay, just take this in. Like, take this in. Like, you know, when you started day one in comedy, if you ever could see yourself right here, right now, about to write jokes with Steve Martin, like, okay, just... 
appreciate it. And well, love yeah, it. That, and that's how you know you're doing the right thing when you start doing the. If ten year old me could see this, yeah, so if yeah, yeah. Me, that's how you know you're doing the right thing. And with Steve Martin, I'm sure the first time you met him, you probably showed up in a white tux with the arrow through the head, right? Yeah, it was a little would, obnoxious. I imagine like, he would Steve, love that. You yeah. could be off now. You don't have to be off. <laughs> Such a regular, like great. And nice you feel guy. comfortable pitching jokes to him, or did you have to overcome the? No, no, it was you know he when he started to respond to some jokes, it really made me relax because it was like laughing and then I forgot what it was but then we went to a party of the um, Oscar you know a pre-party and I brought him over to meet Lori and then he was like oh Carol said the funniest thing the other day and he mentioned one of my jokes and I was like oh. okay this is like the greatest thing ever you know <laughs> awesome. he, he remembered it from the other day did so. you write for him the year that he hosted with Alec yeah oh my god Baldwin, yeah. did you write the joke when he was introducing Ben Slur he said like you loved him in Meet the Parents, you loved him in something else, and you were fine with him in Mystery Man. <laughs> such a fucking great joke. I have to say, no, that was not my joke, but I work with the best, funniest writers. Anytime I've worked on the Oscars, I work with I, the best. I think hosting the Oscars would be the worst job it to is. have because every fucking year it feels like every, all of the writers and bloggers or whatever, it's like they already just sort of write the trashing article yeah. and the film is like no one can ever it seems like the most thankless mm-hmm. yeah. I've, I, I never see anymore where someone writes they knocked it out of the park it's like yeah. you know some jokes work some jokes didn't yeah. fucking ease off you yeah, know like, yeah. it's, 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 not, not it's a fucking hard job <laughs> exactly. it's not why many of the people watching are there yeah like, I, I think they had asked Tina Fey like who do you think you and Amy would ever host the Oscars she was like no yeah <laughs> <laughs> no they're I, so ready yeah. so ready to hate you you know like anything you do it's, it's definitely you know a daunting and also hey guys not that important. It's movies. Like, it's yeah. fun. It should yeah. be fun. Right. Right? Exactly. And, it, you know, it's what I like about, also, I write a lot for the presenters, write their spiel. Yeah. And, I, you know, because also as a performer, you know, my heart goes out to them. It's like, they're not used to performing as themselves. They're right. used to acting. So they're going out there in front of a billion people. So when they're nervous and they have doubts about the material or they want to practice it or whatever, it's like... Knock yourself out. You know, I get it. Not only that, but they're also not, a lot of them are not used to doing something on the spot and essentially getting one live take. Like, you usually get, oh, okay, we'll worry about that. But, you know, giant teleprompter, and then everyone's like, oh, oh, fuck. You know, it's it's almost, (laughs) you know what it is? It's almost like the worst audition they've ever had. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Where they're essentially auditioning for the world. That's true. And they have to come in and they have one shot to nail it. (laughs) And if they don't, they can't go, ah, shit, can I do that again? I know. That might be kind of a funny. That might be kind of a funny way to just to do a, a presentation like it's an audition, and they screwed up. And like, I'm sorry, can I? Do you mind if I go back? I just want to do that one more time. But will people get it? What will people get it if that happened? Or do you think everyone will be like? And then they kind of they thought they were. Oh yeah, they, because they know it was live because everyone's dumb. Yeah. Because masses yeah. of people don't get irony. Yeah. Like you put a bunch of people together and they don't yeah. they don't get irony. Like some there was a, there was a story where a guy posted a picture of. Spielberg next to the Triceratops from Jurassic Park and it was just lying there and he posted this article about you know Steven Spielberg kills dinosaur (laughs) and fucking all these people were like this is why you know it's people like this that ruin the dinosaur like People were uh-huh. responding. Did you see that, Kyle? Did. Like, they didn't even know it was Steven Spielberg. They were just like, some guy murdered a dinosaur. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, that's Steven Spielberg standing next to a dinosaur. Jesus Christ, uh, put that dinosaur uh, on this earth, <laughs> and it's like you're killing Jesus. <laughs> oh, he's a Jew? Okay, then. <laughs> now I get it. Uh, 
so it, it really uh, don't underestimate yeah. people to not get irony in, uh, in, in a lot yeah. of situations. But the worst thing when you write on the Oscars is when there are celebrities who are like, uh, you submit and submit and submit, and they're like, oh, yeah, no, I don't. That's not good. I don't like that. I'm going to write my own thing, and it's like, okay, and the, they have to do it through the producers, but they'll go, okay, write your own scary, funny thing, and then they go out, and this happens, and then they bomb with it. And then I've seen more than one person, and then they turn to the presenter they're with and go, well, you know, I mean, I didn't write it. You know? yeah. <laughs> really? Because like, I know you, you said, did. You really wanted to. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I personally, I just, I love collaborating. I would way rather just sit, like you, I would way rather sit in a room of writers than go off and, sometimes I need to write by myself a little bit to work out thoughts, but I would way rather sit in a room and like bounce shit around and yeah. watch people like. Dogpile jokes on top and of one another. And it makes you better. It, yeah. You know, I love that about a writer's room. It's just the synergy of the volleyball, you know, that you get the best result because yeah. of this person, the setup, and the. Well, you then, know? totally different experience if you're writing the book where you just have to sit down and go, what did I do in my life? Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, right, but, this, this, and this. But I kind of liked it. You know, I kind of like the solitariness of. I mean, I had a great editor, which is... Have you written a book? I did. Okay. Yeah, I did. And, and it is... You write it and you get it all out. And you're like, I'm done. And they send you back a copy with all this all these red marks. <laughs> and you're like, why are you making me think about what yeah, I wrote? Yeah, I right. just wanted to get it out once. Yeah, but, you know, yeah. you need that to make it right. work. And I had a really good editor who was always conscious of... Because it's not just to help people in show business. I think it's really a good guide for anybody who you know, wants to do well in the job market, you know, for being around for almost 40 years, which I have, you know, which is, I mean, stupefying to me. But you need, you need someone to, because when you, when you write everything yourself, and this is why it's important with stand-up too, because you're essentially forming a relationship with other people and an, an audience, a lot of what you write makes sense to you because you have the context right. of it in your head. Yeah. But you need an audience or, or like your, your audience is basically your editor. Uh-huh. Uh, That's true. Performing. Like they're your editor. Right. They're the ones that are like, oh no, that doesn't, we didn't get that. And you can, you, you probably need to explain that. Yeah. More. Yeah. And, uh, cause when you don't have that, you know, or an editor with a book, you just write things and then people are like, what is, who, you know, yeah. who's Uncle Bernie? Uh-huh. You know, like, oh, you got to explain. Oh, right. Who's a writer on Let's yeah. Make a Deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What does a writer do on Let's Make a Deal? Does I it... know. Well, that's the inevitable question that would always follow. <laughs> I guess he just wrote the patter, and he would find the contestants outside. I mean, you know, it really was awesome to me because whatever he did writing for Let's Make a Deal, he really did well because I still remember that house on Mayberry Street <laughs> in Santa Monica. That was – it's actually a house they used in this movie, Laurel Canyon. Oh, wow. Yeah, that, um, you know, it was amazing, but – it's the thing that, I, you know, I have an entire chapter about why I'm grateful to be a stand-up comic, to have come up as a stand-up, because I think it teaches you, you know, enormous things, not just, uh, like, in life overall. I think what you're talking about is, as a stand-up, you know, when you're on stage, you have to really be attuned to the audience, because yeah. they drive it. So, if they're a little sleepy, then you got to do a en- you know, bit with energy. Or if they don't get it, you joke around about it. Or if something bombs, you have to acknowledge it. And I think stand-ups are good with people and in meetings and that kind of thing because you're so attuned to... Uh, know- you know how many people you have a meeting with and they're so boring and you're sitting there thinking, like, it hasn't occurred to this jerk. Like, he is putting this room to sleep. Like, he doesn't <laughs> get it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, as a stand-up, you know that stuff because it's your ass on the line. Sure, and yeah. You really have to move around because it's your life and death up there. Yeah. So I think stand-ups are really good 
uh, intuitive people because you learn to be. I think, and I think you're also talking about just being nimble. Like uh-huh. being, you have to be nimble as a comic because you <laughs> you just ha- you, yeah. you you have to be. And it's if you, and I feel like that does translate into life. But I do also feel like I can get kind of awkward in social situations a little bit. Like if I'm in a big group of people and I don't know everyone, yeah, you would think like, oh, I'll just. I got I, know. I got this, but I just kind of like I just sort of I get shy and I kind of shut down a little bit. But it's most group. most comics, don't you think? I don't know. Do they? Why? Yeah, I, I wonder why so. that is. Because people are always like, when you know, because we have a kid and we meet these other parents, there was like, you know, Carol's so quiet and she's kind of shy, and it's like, you know, they don't, they think you're going to come out there with you to take the mic off and say, hey, how's everybody doing the playground? <laughs> yeah. You know, tell me a joke. You're a comic. <laughs> yeah, no, it's yeah. a, I just I fucking still have to do that to people. They're like. Oh, you're a comedian? Tell me a joke. And I go, eh, it doesn't work that way. Yeah. And to that, what, they just hear that as, I'm not a good comic. Right. <laughs> like, no, yeah. but I don't, I don't have time to yeah. talk about my dad's funeral and I then just, to get to the jokes about it. I just say off the clock. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, that's Tell good. me a joke. Off the clock. Sorry. I wish Sorry, I could. man. I can't. That's good. You, yeah. They, if I do, I got a rep's got to come down. I got to <laughs> yeah, fill out a form. You can't afford it. Big mess. You don't want to do that. Yeah. But you also respect the audience, I think, as a comic, too. What you're talking about with, you know, you try material and you know, like anybody you can try 10 jokes and if you're lucky three work yeah like that's yeah. great that's odds. a good rate yeah. yeah and i've worked on tv shows where it's a live taping and a joke won't work and i can always tell the comics versus the writer writers because the writer writers will be like well that was a good joke so let's keep it and we'll sweeten it when it comes to the thing <laughs> and the comics are always like no the audience didn't get it like let's rewrite for two seconds over here and come up with a few alts and do it, you know, because the audience is the ultimate arbiter, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, 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 it's, it's not a good idea to get too married to one joke. There, I mean, there are a couple jokes that I've had that, that got an okay reception, but I just liked saying them so much that I would do them anyway. But, yeah. it's, but in general, you can't, be real, you can't be precious about your jokes. No. Yeah. Because it's, you know. More will come down the pike. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Even though you feel like, especially if you just do an hour, you're like, well, I guess that's it. I don't know. There's yeah. no more. I think yeah. that's the end of the jokes. Yeah. I think I just. I think I just got to the end of the handkerchief right. that yeah. I was pulling out of my mouth, yeah. and there was the. Voila! All right. Yeah, so I guess we got, that's it. Thanks. Bye. And then we never saw him again. Yeah. I always find there are like two. The biggest misconceptions to me about comics, the the two questions are like. Do you practice in front of the mirror? Yeah. No. Yeah. Only my singing. <laughs> and. Um, I always think that's fascinating, too. Like, does a joke that works in Omaha not work in, you know, Sacramento? It's like, a good joke is a good joke. Unless it's about Omaha. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Sacramento people love Omaha. jokes like about Blaine, Omaha. Blaine Capatch always says, local jokes get you yeah, local, local work. work. Yeah. Um, but, uh, <laughs> you know, that people think somehow the country is really getting jokes somewhere over here and missing it all in Cleveland. Or, or, yeah, or yeah. I wonder if, 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 you, if you and Lori are out, does someone say to Lori, like, I bet it must be a nonstop laugh riot yes. with this one at yeah, home. Yeah, absolutely like, right. I don't think you know comics. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's not. I mean, we can be fun. Yeah. But you know, we do kind of get serious sometimes. Uh huh. Yeah. Right. Most no. times. Yes. <laughs> Lots of times. All yeah. the time. All the time. That's all the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Don't <laughs> don't live with me. <laughs> 
Or people are always like that, like, oh, you know who's funny? Like, Betty in accounting. She oh, that's is right, yeah. A, yeah, and it's like, uh, no, she's funny because she works with you and she's yeah, in accounting. Because she doesn't have to be funny. So when she's slightly funny, yeah. it's hilarious. <laughs> Me and my friend Micah call that, those, those ladies, uh, Beth. It's like I was, uh, we were at this place and there was a koi fish in this pond and then like uh, one lady was like hello sushi and her friend was like oh Beth oh Beth, oh, Beth you're so bad oh so now anytime one of us make like a real bad joke it's just like oh Beth oh my god you know who you should meet Carl Carl's so funny too he's, he's in mechanics got some great cat stories yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. that's fucking amazing <laughs> well Carol Leifer L E I F E R. Thank you, of course. Chris Hardwin. Carol K R. Yes, when I'm in Calabasas. Yes, yes. yes. Are you are you on the Twitter? Or are you on social media? I am on the Twitter. Yes. Yeah, I'll make sure that we get a photo and I'll. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Is it is it Carol at Carol Leifer? At Carol Leifer. All right. Yes. Thank you for. Um, this is fun. You know what I really like about your podcast is. Uh, you come in and we you do it right away. Yeah, which is great. I mean, it might also be a time thing, but <laughs> I know I think it's great because you know how many interviews I've done where you'd sit and you bullshit for five minutes with the person, then you go in the air and it's like the best stuff was right when we saw well, each other. Yeah. The reason that we always have done it that way, and I think the reason being that there's something that happens in people's heads. When you go, okay, now it's time. Yeah. And then they shift into like a mode that is a little bit of a defensive mode. Right. Because they're, okay, now I'm, now I'm being tested. Yes. And I always liked, I always wanted the podcast to have the feel that it was like you were just sort of being dropped into the middle of a conversation that was already in progress. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we just always would turn them on and just start talking. And, and then like it, it's almost a drinking game for people. How many times we'll, we'll talk for 10 minutes and they'll go, when do we start? And it's like, no, we started 10 minutes ago. We're just talking <laughs> yeah, yeah. because we're, we're people yeah. and we can just have a conversation. Yeah. But, I, but I, never, I never liked that moment when I was doing interviews of like, okay, Carol, yeah. welcome. <laughs> right. You're like, hello. Yeah, you know, yeah. like I would rather just, yeah. and I always just, you know, I always just thought to myself, well, you know, if the small talk at the beginning doesn't work, we can cut it out and we've never had to. Yeah. That's great. So no, that's, I that's, really, really like that. That's, sort of, that's sort of why whenever I come in, like that's why Katie knows like the second... Everyone comes in, the recorder goes on, and, and we just start, you know, like, it's just whatever, whatever it is. Yeah. I like it! <laughs> unless, unless you started saying a bunch of really horrible things uh, or confessions, uh, then I you would... You know I killed a man. No! <laughs> no, did. you were like that guy in that apartment building from the comedy condo. He killed lots no, of people. No, I know, but, but I didn't win in Vegas, and I killed somebody. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's fine. It'll stay there. there. Uh, all right, everyone. Enjoy your burrito. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. 
and you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.